We uh, started um, a series uh, a little while back called Life Apps, and we uh, began by looking um, in, in the book of James, a book written by Jesus' brother, who said that the Word of God is not just something to be listened to and not just something to be read, although we need to listen to it and we need to read it, but it's not just something to listen to and it's not just something to read, it's something to do. It's something to apply to our lives. And so we uh, began in this series by talking uh, about some specific things that God in his word wants us to not just know, but to be able to apply to our lives as well. And to kind of get you thinking about this weekend, because, you know, I'll just tell you right now, um, what we're going to talk about this weekend, some of you are just going to be like, cool. And some of you are going to be like, oh, good grief. And so, you know, we're just going to go down that road. So I'm going to try to warm you up, okay? So I was uh, <laughs> I'm looking this week and thinking a little bit. And, um, and I discovered something I, I thought was kind of surprising, that the uh, second most recognizable symbol in the world, I don't know what you would think that would be, but it's this. The second most recognizable symbol in the world. And you may know a little bit about Coca-Cola. I was really sad. It wasn't Pepsi. But, um, you know, Coca-Cola was invented in, what, 1886 by a chemist named George Pemberton. And you may know a little bit about that, like how it got its name, right? So it got its name from the two main ingredients in Coca-Cola. Um, the first was um, cocaine. And uh, you, some of you know this, so you know I'm not kidding, but it was cocaine. And, and, and the word coca stands for the word uh, coca leaf, which is where they get cocaine from. And the second one was caffeine. And uh, that's from the cola nut, spelled K-O-L-A, but they changed it to C-O-L-A for marketing. And thus you get Coca-Cola, literally <laughs> cocaine, caffeine in a drink. And uh, of course, you know, after a while, they, they changed that. Uh, probably makes some of you sad and some of you happy. What you may not know about Coca-Cola is that they have kind of a mantra, a mission statement. They don't put it on their products. They don't put it on their website, but um, their employees know this. It's kind of their mantra, and the mantra is, or the goal is to have a Coke with an arm's reach of everyone on the planet. It's kind of a lofty goal, and in fact, they're doing pretty well. We know that Coca-Cola is available in over 200 different countries of the world. Um, They've actually expanded over 500 brands now. Uh, Just Coca-Cola itself, there's over 1.7 billion servings dispensed every day. 1.4 billion. When you think about it, it's not too bad. For sugar water, is it? But I want to talk today about the most recognizable symbol in the world. And uh, I don't know what you think that would be, but it's actually in this room. It's right on the wall right here. The most recognizable symbol in the world is the cross. And yeah, that's pretty cool. That's okay. And you know, it kind of makes sense because we've got it in buildings and we've got it on buildings and it's in art and in hospitals and on jewelry, right? And earrings and, you know, clothing and people have crosses in their homes and sometimes they have it hanging from their rearview mirror. Uh, it's in songs, you know, it's on hill. You just drive down the road and there's a cross on a hill and that's just, crosses are everywhere. And the reason that's kind of good for us is because it reminds us that the cross isn't just a symbol that, that's a, a work of art or, you know, something we can admire. The cross is actually something that God wants us to apply to our lives. It, it has an application. And in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul's writing and he says this, talking about the cross. He says, now the message of the cross. Now the message of the cross, by the way, is simply this. 
that uh, we were created by a God. We are not an accident. We are not random chance. We are the, the design and the creation of an almighty sovereign God who created us and, and gave us free will. And we chose to pursue another path in life. And we sinned against God. We were separated from God. But God loves us. God cares about us. So he sent his son who came down to this earth about 2,000 years ago. And at the age of 30, he began ministering and, and sharing the love of God, the message of God, the truth of God, uh, healing people. At the age of about 33, he went to a Roman cross where he, he was nailed, he was crucified, he, he died, he shed his blood on that cross. The message of the cross is simply that none of us can ever be good enough to earn our way to heaven. We cannot, we cannot do the enough works or it's not a ritual, it's not religion, it's the gift of God that he offers to us through what Christ did on the cross. So Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness. It's foolishness to people when they hear it. Uh, some people think it's foolish because they believe there's no God. Some people think it's foolish because they think, no, no, in order to get to God, you have to be good enough. And Paul says, but you can't be good enough. You can only receive the gift of God. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So today I want to talk a little bit about moving on from the application of the cross and forgiveness that God offers to our lives. And I want to go a little bit farther with it. I want to be real specific and talk about just a little bit of a slice of that and how it relates to us and the people around us in our marriage, with our families, with our friends, uh, with our enemies, with Christians, with non-Christians. And the big idea we're going to look at today is this, that, that God's forgiveness to us, that is what God offers to us on the cross when we place our faith in Christ, Christ declares us forgiven. That that forgiveness not only comes to us, but God also wants it to flow through us to the people around us. And so I kind of want to, again, draw you into this. I was going to ask you a question, but it's kind of a dumb question. The question I was going to ask is, have you, has there ever been a time in your life when someone sinned against you or did wrong to you? And of course, that's a dumb question because we live in a fallen world and nobody's perfect and everyone sins. And, and everybody around us at some point has, has hurt us, has sinned against us, lied about us or lied to us or gossiped or whatever. And I think if we had time, all of us could stand up and probably share a, a pretty heavy story about something that someone has done to us at some point in our life. And I, I think we would all agree that those things that people do to us, the, the ways that people sin against us, those things shape us to some degree, don't they? The things that people do to us. And of course, we don't really have any control over what people do to us. The things that people do to us, though, the way they sin against us at times, that shapes us. But I think we would also agree that our response to those things also shapes us. It's not just what people do to us that shapes us. It's how we respond to what people do to us. And of course, that second part is the only part we really have control over. If we respond with hate, if we respond with vengeance, if we respond by holding a grudge, that impacts us. Now, I know for some of us, holding a grudge is kind of like a, it's kind of like a guilty pleasure. It feels better than just forgiving people and, and dealing with it. And you've probably never done this, but maybe you know people around you, somebody's really sinned against them. And instead of forgiving them, they kind of held a grudge against the person and maybe fantasized about what it would be like to get even with that person, what that would look like to tell them off. Or, or maybe we imagine that because they sinned against us and wronged us, that 
that their life just starts falling apart. Have you done that? Their life is just going to disintegrate. And at some point, they're going to come back to us groveling and saying, oh, you know, I was, you were right and I was wrong. And I'm so sorry for sinning against you. And we can imagine them just being humiliated and, and, and apologizing in front of everybody. And, and, and we're just publicly vindicated. And, and we look so good for our holiness. And they look so terrible for what they did. I know you're probably thinking, is that what you think about? But you know, we probably, maybe we've imagined that at times. And the question I would ask is this, but does holding a grudge against people really work? Does it really accomplish what we would hope that it would accomplish? And I only ask that because in my own limited experience, and of course, being a pastor, I get to hear lots of stories about lots of wrongs that have been done to people. And, and, and in my experience, here's what I found. Holding a grudge has never made anyone happy that I'm aware of. Aware of. It, it's never brought peace to anybody's life. It, it never helped anybody sleep better at night to hold on to that grudge. It, it only makes your life more complicated. It makes your relationships, your marriage more complicated. It makes decision-making more complicated. We're making decisions today based on things that happened to us in the past. And, and, and in some cases, it, we, we, uh, we get to this place in life where the other person has like forgotten about it and moved on. And we're still tied down. We're still chained to that thing that they did to us. And there's, there's a sinister thing about grudge holding. And that is that the longer you hold a grudge, the more that grudge has a hold of you. It may be that some of you walked in here this morning uh, carrying, you carried a grudge in with you. And, and you're starting to wonder who owns who now. It may be taking control of you. And, and it owns you. You don't own it anymore. And I want you to know this, that God wants to release you from the grip of the grudge. That God has a great future for you. But unfortunately, sometimes we're so chained to the past that we can't get there. And my, my prayer this week has been that we would realize today that there is a God who stands ready and, and able to release us from the grip of the grudge. That we would realize that when we hold a grudge against someone, it's hurting us more than it's hurting the person that we're holding a grudge against. God stands ready and willing to help us. And he does that, I think, through the truth of his word. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that. Now, I think a good place for us to start again would be to go back to the cross, to the, the universally most recognized Symbol, And I say the cross because it's always helpful to start there. Now, when we picture cross, like right now as we look at the cross, this is kind of generally what we think of. Um, this particular version of a cross is, uh, is the Roman version. There were actually two versions of a cross back in Christ's day. There was the Western version, and then there was, the, there was actually an Eastern version. Um, we, our understanding would be that Jesus was cru- uh, crucified by the Eastern Legion of Rome and where the Western version of the cross looked like a lowercase uh, T, the, uh, the Eastern version looked like an uppercase T, uh, kind of like that. Um, the, 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 the upright beam and the, the cross beam, the vertical and the horizontal beam um, had two two names. The upright beam was called the stipes. And what we know about uh, Jerusalem and Palestine during the time of Christ was wood was uh, fairly in short supply. And so the Romans would usually take the upright beam, the stipes, and they would um, put it in the ground and they would leave it there. 
It would just always permanently be there where they crucified people. And then the crossbar, the patabellum is what they called it in Latin. That, that crossbar, it would weigh anywhere between 75 to 125 pounds. That would be the beam that someone who's being crucified would be made to carry to the place of crucifixion. And then the, the cross beam, the patabellum would be placed on the ground. The person would be put up against that. They would be uh, nailed to it, often tied to it, and then it would be hoisted up and put in place on the stipes. And this is probably what the cross that Jesus was crucified on looked like. Now, another thing, um, often in art and, and pictures of the cross, and you know, even here a little bit, we look at the cross, and our cross is as big as it is because we just want it to be prominent in the room. But a lot of times when we think about the crucifixion, we think of Jesus and we think of the cross being like, you know, from the ground to the top, maybe being 15 to 25 feet in the air. But we know that the Eastern Legion, in fact, when they crucified somebody, from the ground to the top of the cross was only about seven to seven and a half feet feet. And that was it. And there was a reason why they didn't put a person way up in the air. And the reason was this. They wanted people who came in contact and and who saw the crucifixion, they wanted people to be able to be eye to eye with the person who was dying on that cross. They wanted people to be able to see it and hear it and smell it and experience it. They wanted people to to look the crucified person in the eyes because here's what Rome knew. They knew that if you watched the, the horrific, horrific scene of someone dying on the cross, and this week, uh, as I was preparing for this sermon, just again, it's just a horrific type of death. They knew that if someone saw that, they would never forget that. In Rome, when they crucified people, they were sending a message, and the message was this. If you do not bow the knee to Rome, if you do not obey our laws, this too could be you. And so they would send the message to people. You don't want this to happen to you. That was the message they were sending. But we know that Rome wasn't the only kingdom sending a message on the day that Jesus was being crucified. There was a far greater kingdom with a far greater message of of far greater significance. And that was the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God was also sending a message on the day that our savior was crucified. And that message was this, come on up and get face to face with the savior of the world. The savior beaten and bruised and bleeding and battered and spit upon and crucified. Come up and get close to the savior of the world. Look him eye to eye. Because the kingdom of heaven knows this. God knows this, that if we, when we saw him, when we saw that, we would, we would never forget that picture, that, that scene. And what the Bible teaches us when we come face to face with the risen savior, with the story of the cross, it reminds us of several very important facts. Romans tells us this, that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, that it was our sin that separated us from God, but it was the love of God that caused him to come after us. It tells us later in Romans chapter five, God demonstrated his own love for us in this way. This is what he did. While we were still sinners, it says that Christ died for us. Even though we had sinned against God, he offered us forgiveness, not vengeance, not judgment, but forgiveness. Just imagine for a moment that you had been there on the day that Jesus was crucified. Imagine that you came up to him face to face, like, 
like John did and like his mother would have and others. And imagine that you looked in the eyes of the Savior of the world and that he was looking back at you. And he knew as he looked at you that you knew why he was there. And imagine what that scene would look like. Would you ever forget that picture? And the reason it's so important for us to think about that is because in a very real sense, we were all there. Because the message of the cross is timeless and it's personal. And what the cross means is this, that because God loved us so much and because of what Christ did on the cross, that the grace of God is now available to you. That forgiveness is now available. No matter what you've done, no matter how much you've sinned, no sin trumps the cross. And if we place our faith in Christ and what he did for us on the cross, God has a word for us, a declaration for us, and that declaration is forgiven. That we have been forgiven. But, but that's not all. That's not where it stops. It's not as we read the New Testament, as we read the epistles, it doesn't stop there. It's not just that God declares us forgiven, but God's grace and his forgiveness comes to us so overflowing and so overwhelming that it doesn't just come to us. God wants it to be something that overflows or is reflected in us to the relationships around us. That when you understand the cross and you embrace the cross, that you become one of those people, and we say this a lot, forgiven people forgive. When we have been forgiven by God, we, we become forgiving people. And, and God inspired a man by the name of Paul. We looked at him and his life and the turnaround he did when we studied the first part of the book of Acts. And, and he led Paul on one occasion to write about the topic of forgiveness in our lives towards other people. So he's writing to people who have been forgiven by Christ, who have been atoned for, and we have a relationship with Christ but what do we do with the people around us who sin and make mistakes? And, and, and what do we do with that? How do we react to that? And in Romans chapter 12 and verse 17, Paul writes this. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. So if you've got some notes there and you've got a pen, you might circle or underline that second occurrence of the word evil there. Now, now he is not saying that when people sin against you, you should just go, no biggie, and, you know, I'll uh, give me some more of that, and, you know, or just deny it, or pretend it didn't happen, or cover it up. That's not what he's saying. In fact, what he's saying is, we need to call it what it is. Sin is evil. Evil is evil. So he's not saying downplay it or pretend it's not sin. He's saying there are times when people sin against you, and it's evil. And it's okay to call it what it is. When people hurt you, lie to you, lie about you, uh, steal something from you, he says that's evil. But notice, you might circle or underline the first occurrence of the word evil. He says when people sin against you, you have a choice. You have a choice. You, he says don't repay evil with evil. That's one choice. One choice is to respond to evil with evil, to respond to gossip with gossip, to respond to abuse with abuse, to respond to lies with lies, right? That's one choice that we have. But what he says is, don't, don't do that. Don't respond to evil with evil. What he says in the next verse is, if it's at all possible, if there's, you know, any way, as far as it depends on you, because it doesn't always, but as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, you might underline or circle that word peace there. 
What he's saying here is simply this. When people sin against you and hurt you and harm you and abuse you, it doesn't mean that you need to be, you have to be BFFs with them or you have to be partners with them. It, it doesn't mean that. But say, for instance, if you're in business with someone and they're stealing from you, and it doesn't mean every time they steal from you, you just brush it off and go, oh, that felt so good. Give me some more of that. That's not what it's saying. It's, it's, you may have to confront them. You might have to fire them. You might have to correct them or set some boundaries when people hurt you or lie against you or break a promise. But what he is saying is this. As far as it depends on you, as far as it's possible, you need to have this goal in mind. The goal needs to be peace. Now that's pretty powerful because you know as well as I do that sometimes when people sin against us, uh, our goal is just to make them pay. Or our goal is just to make a point. There's a difference between making a point and looking for peace. Even if it's not ultimately up to you. What he's saying here is that with peace in mind, it, that, 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 that has an influence on the choices that you make. That's going to influence the words that you choose when you respond to the person. Because you know as well as I do, when people sin against us, there are words we can say that can inflame the situation and we often know exactly what those words are. Or we can choose words that might help us reach the goal of peace. You know as well as I do that there are things we can do to inflame a situation or things that may hold out the prospect of peace. And things we, we, choices we make, attitudes, goals. What he's saying is the goal in mind needs to be peace. Now he goes on and he says this. He's really just kind of digging down because I think as Paul goes through this, if, if you're like me and most of us, it's easy to kind of push back and say, well, you don't know what they've done and what they've said and what it's cost me. So he's just going to, he's kind of continuing to peel back the layers of this onion, if you will. In verse 19, he says, now, let me just make it even clearer. Do not take revenge. My dear friends, I, there's something about this verse that just kind of makes me laugh because he's kind of ratcheting it up and I almost feel him kind of going, now don't take revenge, you know? And then he kind of softens up and goes, my dear friends. He's just kind of going, come on, you guys. Just soften it up again, but, but leave room for, and I, I love this, for God's wrath. That's a pretty heavy word. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, two questions. These are not trick questions. Two questions based on this verse. First of all, whose job is it to avenge you? Anyone? God's. Yes, thank you. That's right. It wasn't a trick question. God, all right? Here's the second question. When you avenge yourself, whose job are you assuming? There you go. See, that was a little bit easier, right? And I think that most of us would probably agree that we're not very good at at playing God in this world, are we? Like... Uh, there have been times in my relationships where I've kind of stepped across the line and played. I've never had anyone come and say, I love it when you play God. I love it when you step into God's role. You've probably not had that happen either, okay? Because we're not good at it, all right? God's good at it. We're not. But why do we do that? Why are we so tempted sometimes to step in and play God? in our relationships. And I, you know, I think there's all sorts of reasons why. Sometimes it's just because we're, we're mad, we're angry, we're vengeful. Sometimes it's not that at all. I think sometimes we're just worried that um, if I just leave it up to God, um, God might not deal with it. And this person might just get away with it. And then they'll just turn around and do it again, right? And, and I think sometimes the issue is we're not sure we trust God to be God. 
Sometimes we almost feel like we need to show God how to be God. God, I'll show you how to be God. And then next time, you know, you can, you can be my apprentice. And the next time someone sins against me, you can step in and we'll see how you do. But in the meantime, I'm going to do it because I'm not quite sure I can trust you. And Paul says, let God be God. Leave the vengeance up to him so you can be free to be who he's created you to be. And that takes us to the next question we usually ask when we're thinking about this and that is okay. So how far do I take this? How far do I extend forgiveness to the people around me? In verse 20, he says this. Now on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Now, who is your enemy here? He's talking about the people who sin against you, the people who hurt you, the people who lie about you, the people who gossip about you. He says, just imagine them as your enemy for a moment. And, and, and if your enemy is hungry, feed them. And if they're thirsty, give them something to drink, help rehydrate them, give them some Gatorade, you know? And, and in doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head. So a couple things here, if you've ever studied this passage, and I know some of you have, because you're laughing. So um, the, I, the idea of forgiveness here, first of all, is, is aggressive. All right? It's not passive. It's not be a doormat. It's not just sit back and go, oh, poor me. Don't worry about me. Just step all over me. There's an aggressive nature to forgiveness here that says, I'm actually going to be watching you and looking out for you. And if you're hungry, I'm going to be the person that, you know, gives you something to eat. And if you're thirsty, I'm going to be the person who gives you something to drink. And in doing so, it's like uh, heaping burning coals on their head. Okay, so what What's that all about? And if you've studied the Bible, you know there's some differing views on what the burning coals on someone's head are. So let me give you just a couple of the prevailing theories. Um, the first one is that it just kind of matches the context, and he's talking about a practical need here. Um, in a lot of towns and villages back then, um, in that culture, there would be somebody uh, who would have a business in town, and their job was to always keep a fire going and to always be producing hot coals. And then you might live in the village, and, and it's morning, and you want to cook some breakfast, so you would go to that place in the village, and you would have this metal bucket, and you would put some hot coals in there, and then you would take those coals home, and you would cook breakfast. And the picture he has here is somebody who's, they're carrying their bucket and they're going. And, and so you're the person and you're like, oh, hey, wait, no, let me get that for you. Don't even take the bucket down. I'll just get the tongs and I'll put that in there for you. And God bless you, go on your way and you, you make your breakfast. And the idea is it's just like goes along with feeding them and giving them something to drink. It's meeting a practical need in their life. That, that's one view. Um, not everybody likes that view. Uh, the idea is to bless your enemies, like honestly, truly from the heart. The, uh, another view is that this is actually a picture, and we get this from the Proverbs, of actually the coals stand for shame, and you're just heaping shame on the person's head. In other words, it goes like this. They were a jerk, and you were not a jerk. They sinned against you. They said something, and you reflect the love of Christ, and you're just so kind and gentle. And what happens is, as they're a jerk, and you're nice, that the nicer you are, the jerkier they look. And the, and the, and the sweeter you are, the meaner they look. And, and as you respond to their jerkiness with your just holiness, it's like it just makes their jerkiness more and more evident. Everybody just, you know how it is, like, you're like, what's wrong with him? That guy's such a jerk. And wow, she's so holy. And you know, that's kind of the, now some people think that's what's going on here. And that certainly is reflected in the Proverbs. There's another um, view of this, which is it, it's just judgment. It's like the hot coals are just like 
putting fire on their stinking rotten head. You know, that's just all that is here. And some people go down that road. Whatever view you take, I think here's one thing we can be uh, certainly in agreement on, that forgiveness is, is an aggressive form of trying to bless the other person. It's not passive. It's not just sitting back going, oh, well, I can't, you know, decide, I, I can't decide what people do to me. I'll just be a doormat and let people walk all over me. No, it says you're aggressive. You do your part. You bless the person that has uh, been persecuting, that sinned against you. He goes on in the next verse. He says this, do not be overcome by evil. Don't let that be your response, but overcome evil with good. Again, you might circle or underline that first occurrence of the word overcome. So he says you have two choices when people sin against you. You have two choices. The first is that you can be overcome by evil. Now, how are you overcome by evil? You are overcome by evil when you respond with evil. So because when somebody does evil to you, that doesn't make you evil. What, what, what becomes evil on your part is when you respond in kind. When you meet gossip with gossip. When you meet abuse with abuse, when you lash out in revenge, when you play God's role, when you refuse to be forgiving. And you could do that. But the irony here is that in doing so, you allow evil to have two victories in your life where it didn't have to have any. The first victory is you, you let the other person hurt you and impact you and direct the course of your life. And the second is that now you've done evil, not just them. But you, and you've allowed that sin to have two victories in your life. Paul just says, why would you do that? That's a, that's a bad choice. Here's a better choice. Overcome evil with good. Be a victor when it comes to evil in your life. How do we do that? I, I think what he's pointing to and what scripture points to is that when people sin against you and me, and our response is not vengeance or evil, but our response is to reflect the character of Christ in our lives, that we allow the light of God, the, the love of God to be reflected from us. The, the forgiveness of Christ comes in us. The love of Christ comes to us. The grace of God comes to us. And then it extends to the people around us. Obviously, ultimately, the forgiveness of their sin is up to God. But when it comes to your relationship with them, God has given you the choice to freely forgive them for what they've done. What does that look like? Well, scripture tells a lot. It means that you let God's light shine through you as you forgive, when you bless your enemy, when you pray for those who persecute you, when you turn the other cheek. He says, when we do that, we reflect the character of Jesus Christ in our life. So with all of that in mind, let me just point out four simple principles from the passage. And the first one is this. We need to learn to embrace God's forgiveness for us. I mean, that's really where all, all that we've talked about today, all of that begins. We go all the way back to the picture of the cross. And for some of you, the, the sin that has been done to you and the wound is so fresh for you that probably the, the one thing that you need to do right now more than anything else is come back to the cross, is spend some time with the Savior is to, and, and you might do what some other people and this morning and last night literally did at the end of the service, they literally came to the cross. They came and sat up front during the last song, hung out for a while, prayed and spent some time with the Savior that, to embrace what he did for you, to, to revel 
in the forgiveness that Christ has extended to you. To be able to embrace the fact that you are a child of God, to understand no matter what you've done, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you are forgiven. You are holy. The Bible says you are blameless. I think what really makes it hard for us sometimes is that God has forgiven us for the things we've done, but sometimes we can't forgive ourselves. And that always becomes difficult because when, when, when we cannot accept, and the irony is that, that God has forgiven us, but we somehow can't forgive ourselves for some of the things we've done. And what I find is this, when we don't feel forgiven, it's hard for us to be forgiving. And that's why we go to the second point, and that is to remember that it's forgiven people who forgive. When we, don't, when we have not accepted the forgiveness of God, it makes it difficult for us to be forgiving people. But once we've experienced that, once we've spent some time at the cross, I think that it becomes not only easier, but I think it becomes natural, or maybe I should say supernatural for us to want to extend that forgiveness to the people around us relationally. In Ephesians, Paul put it this way, get rid of all bitterness. He's talking about your relationships. Get rid of the bitterness and the rage and the anger that can so easily come from the complicated relationships and the sin that people do to us. Get rid of the harsh words. Get rid of the slander as well as all types. Notice here, sounds familiar, of evil, of evil behavior and responses. Instead, in other words, here's a different way to live, folks. There's a different way to live. Be, notice, be kind to each other. And be, and I love this word, be tender-hearted. I like that word because I'm not very good at it. That's what I've been told. So I read it and I'm like, be tender. Have a tender heart toward the people around you. And, and forgiving, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. You understand? I'm not talking about you absolving the sins of other people. That's, that's God's job. I'm just talking about in terms of your relationship with them, that you would extend the grace and the love and the character of Christ to the people around you. And then the third principle is to just let God, let God be God. Let God avenge you. And remember that forgiveness is an aggressive practice on your part. It's not vengeful. It requires a bold faith that trusts that God will take care of that. And the fourth principle is this. Overcome the evil that is done to you with good. Let God's spirit lead your interaction with the people that sin against you. Let the spirit of God be the one who leads how you respond. That that response can reflect the grace of God in your life. That you'll ask God to show, to, to show you how to, to help you go forward in your life when people sin against you and to help them move forward and, and to allow you to overcome the evil that is done against you with, with good. You know, one of the things that we talk about in our church a lot is, is oikos. And if you come for a while, you're probably familiar with that. Oikos is a Greek word that they used back during the time of Christ and Paul. It meant household. And so when people would talk about their household, the word they literally would say is my oikos. And when they thought of a household back then, they didn't just think of a roof. When they said household, what they meant was all the people in their life that they have loving, influential relationships with. Studies today say that the average American has anywhere from 8 to 15 loving, influential relationships. Those are people that you know and that know you, that love you and you love them, and you have influence in their life. Some of them are believers, some of them are not. 
But these are people who are watching you. They're, they're, they're watching your life. They're watching your responses. They're, they're looking to you to see how you respond when people sin against you. What do you do? Do you, do you lash out in revenge? Do you, do you respond to evil with evil? Because what they need is, whether they know it or not, they need a light. They need to see the light of God around them. And you have the opportunity to shine that light through grace and through forgiveness. The person you're married to, that your children, your parents, your friends, they need to see that. And that's why God has put you there in that oikos. You have the opportunity to reflect the love and the care of God to those people around you. So we're going to close with a word of prayer and song. And, you know, I don't know uh, where you are with this today. And I've had um, a couple of conversations with people who were just like, you know, I came today and I just, all I really needed to do is go to the cross. I have just not spent enough time with the Lord lately. And that's what they've done. I've had a few people come up and go, you know, for me, I've just been trying to make the other person pay. And today was the day I just had to say, I've been trying to be God. I'm going to let go of that. I had a few people come up this weekend and go, you know what? I just don't like what you said. (laughs) Um, And I'm still, I just, I'm still struggling with it. And I've had several long drawn conversations this weekend. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay. I think it's okay for us to wrestle with it if that's really where we are. And again, maybe that's what you need to do. You just need to have a conversation with somebody and continue to work this out and to wrestle with the truth of God. And, and I would applaud you for doing that. Don't just leave it there. Do it. Pursue it. Find a spiritually mature person in your life to help you continue to, to work this through. But I'm going to ask you if you just uh, bow your head and close your eyes and spend a few moments with the Savior.